with me and say the memory verse. <laughs> it, it, I, you just have to. This one especially. Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your children so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Well, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, the infamous blessings and curses. Back in September, Drew cited these two chapters as an example of Deuteronomy's pervasive tone of doom and pessimism. He pointed out, and I quote, those two chapters have a couple of paragraphs describing blessings and a couple of pages of curses describing the Israelites' future. So, here we are. Did any of you find yourselves literally cringing? And possibly, did you even start skimming over the gory details of some of those curses? I found it easy to get bogged down by them. And then I found myself taking comfort in the only comfort I could find. These blessings and curses were intended for the Israelites. God was speaking directly to them. I took comfort in that. And I took comfort in the fact that the Israelites lived under the Old Testament sacrificial system. A system of faith exercised within a perpetual cycle of physical sacrifices offered to atone for sin. Take comfort with me in this truth. The new covenant in Christ's body and blood has broken that cycle, that sacrificial system. Hebrews 10, 1 through 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Then down in verse 8 it says, First Christ said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Christ said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Utter comfort. Join me in prayer. Lord, this morning, we just pause to acknowledge Christ's sacrifice. Without it, Eternity could only hold the curse of separation. But through Christ, eternity can be spent in your presence. Thank you for the blessing of salvation. Today, Lord, my prayer is that the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, would lovingly convict each of us through the study of this passage. May we be confronted by the call to carefully walk in all your ways. 
Through Christ, so be it. Amen. While comforted by my position in Christ and its corresponding lack of personal connection to the blessings, all those, those would be okay with me, and no personal connection to the curses, woohoo, um, I'm also confronted by the eternal and applicable truths found within their context. The first truth that confronts in this passage, it's not in this passage, it's just an overarching truth that confronts us, is the fallen nature of humanity hasn't changed. We each fall under the curse of sin. We struggle against God's authority in our lives. So we intermittently follow and then go our own way. We obey with joy and a glad heart until we don't. Either by choosing to just obey on the outside or by choosing to flagrantly disobey for all the world to see. That's who we are. Fallen in need of a savior. The second truth that confronts is that God hasn't changed. He's the same in Deuteronomy as he is in some of in John 3:16. He hasn't changed. Our first memory verse this year was Deuteronomy 4:39. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven on earth and heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Last week, um, Diana tenderly shared the blessing of her list of I knows. And while soaking in the joy and contentment she so authentically conveyed, I was in the car soaking in it when two songs played back to back on the radio. And my heart was pricked once again as I heard these words as if they were coming out of her lips to us and out of the Lord's heart to us. I want you to know the God I know. You've got to know the God I know. And then right after that, every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Diana, you testified to processing the truth of what can be known. Not everything can be known but what can be known about God. And you testified to going beyond, <clears throat> excuse me, intellectually grasping the I knows to actually internalizing the effects of those known truths. You encouraged us all to know and lay it to our heart. There is no other. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8, Christ Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. From this passage and others, we can learn about the principles of relating to and with the relentlessly loving, relentlessly just, relentlessly righteous, relentlessly wrathful, relentlessly jealous, and relentlessly merciful triune God. These truths, these I knows, should be constantly comforting us and simultaneously confronting us. As we open today's portion of scripture, we're gonna flip the numerical sequence of the chapters and begin with the blessings and curses that are outlined in chapter 28. And then we're gonna conclude 
by returning to chapter 27 because it leaves me in a happier place. It's all about me, I guess. I don't know, but it really wasn't. It's just what I decided to do. Uh, December, so, so Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2. That's where we're going to start, surprisingly, the first two verses of 28. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Peter Craigie writes in his commentary, there's an emphasis there on the internal blessing of God on his people, indicating the health and prosperity of the nation per se. But there's also an emphasis on the strength and vitality of Israel vis-a-vis other nations. So 14 brief yet powerful verses of blessing later, Deuteronomy 28.15 reads, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow his, all of his commands and decrees that I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Dr. Craigie's earlier quote continues, the converse of both these emphases appears in the section dealing with curses. Israel not only would experience disaster within her communal life as a result of disobedience, but would be openly humiliated among other nations. The section of curses covers 54 verses and depicts all things horrendous, heinous, detestable, and unthinkable. Maladies, both physical and mental. Drought, drought so bad that it resulted in hunger, thirst, and nakedness, meaning they couldn't even make fabric because their sheep weren't flourishing. I mean, think about it. Military defeat, defeat of such annihilation that no one would be left to bury the dead. Cessation of common or communal celebrations and ridicule to the point of being overlooked by their own enemies at a slave auction. Quote, no one will buy you. Heavy. And while blessings and curses are clearly opposites, God's admonition is identical. Be careful to follow. The words careful and carefully are used more than 35 times, depending on your version and your uh, translation, in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 26.16 from last week's lesson starts us off and says, The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Moses over and over implores the Israelites to be careful, to do what it takes, to foster their relationship with the Lord their God, to follow and love God with all their hearts and souls. Be careful, take care as you relate to the Lord your God. The very idea of care, being careful or taking care always makes me think back to some of the most rambunctious days of motherhood, and I did say of motherhood, not just childhood, but of motherhood. During those developmental years of my motherhood, I remember often saying, stop blank, fill in the blank, stop. And then I recall hearing these heartfelt and honest replies. I'm not trying to blank, 
And I would respond and say, well, you need to, you need to try not to blank. For instance, picture a puddle-filled yard releasing the boys, your children, into it. And I say, stop getting in the mud. And they say, I'm not trying to get in the mud. And I say, you need to try not to get in the mud. Now make that yard life and mud the mess of sin. And God says, stop sinning. And we say, I'm not trying to sin. And he says, be careful and try not to sin. Honestly, that tiny shift in emphasis changes everything. We may not be intentionally seeking puddles and stomping in them to flagrantly disobey, but we also may not be taking care to avoid entering messy situations of sin. Carefully tending our relationship with God means more than not stomping in the mess on purpose. It means intentionally planning your course to avoid not only the middle of the puddles, but even the edges where the mud just begins to form. Carefully tending goes even further than that, and it includes looking for the low spots in the grass, which can be deceptively soggy and also land you in a mess. Walking in all of his ways, being careful to and being careful not to, requires a high level of awareness. The Israelites were commanded to obey and follow. And as they followed the Lord's commands, decrees, and laws, they could see God's leading and identify his blessings because their gaze, their focus, would be on the one they were following. And when they didn't obey, didn't follow, turned away, forsook the Lord their God, they headed away from God's leading. And their self-induced change in focal point, they did it. They turned their focal point away. That self-induced change obscured their view of God's presence. So where is your focal point? Are you consistently, wholeheartedly following after God? Or have you turned to follow your own path according to your own wisdom and thus obscuring the view, your view, of the one you're supposed to be following? God's call to the Israelites was to carefully obey and follow. We've seen that specific outcomes were connected to being careful to follow or not being careful to follow. It would be easy to reduce the blessings and curses to simply being the result of either moral goodness, moral fortitude, obedience, resulting in blessings, or evil doing and rebellion, resulting in curses. But if we do that, if we reduce it to just simply that equation, if then, which it certainly is, we could miss the fuller explanation of why Israel would enjoy a state of blessing or a season of curses. John Murray, author of The Covenant of Grace, writes, Israel was God's covenant people. God, in sheer grace, displayed many mighty acts of deliverance on her behalf and took her into covenant. In gratitude, Israel accepted his invitation. It was her covenant with Yahweh which created, sustained, and gave meaning to her nationhood. To disobey Yahweh was to betray and reject the very source of her life. 
the only way for Israel to live her peculiar life was to remain in fellowship with Yahweh. In that fellowship lay her entire peace, her whole peace, the totality of her well-being. And out of fellowship with Yahweh, she was cut off from life. If his sovereignty were denied and his law rejected, Israel would depart into the way of death. He, God, would then enter into controversy with his people and would bring his judgment upon them so that they might be purged, refined, and restored. What an illustration of judgment with God's view, which is towards repentance and renewal. That's where we are today, at the point where they're going to renew the covenant. That quote gets to the heart of the matter for the Israelites and all of creation. A relationship to the one and only God is the source, the only source of true life. We can learn from the Israelites about relating to God because God told them how to relate to him. Since God is immutable, changeless, always the same in his nature, his character, and his will, his nature sets unchanging parameters, unchanging expectations for his followers. Therefore, we can find common ground with the Israelites. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13 reads, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you or require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. <clears throat> Observing the Lord's commands and decrees for your own good is precisely what chapters 27 and 28 address. God's desire for his followers is to observe and obey his commands and decrees for their own good. Several weeks ago, Susie Everett thoroughly covered the essential role of obedience in the life of a follower of God. Obedience, motivated by loving God with all your heart and with all your soul. That kind of obedience always pleases God. So look just at verse 12 with me. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? One verse offering an entire life's mission for Israel and for us, a mission that results in a life of obedience. Now, at first glance, a verse that begins, and now, O Israel, doesn't seem like a sensible place to start to build a case of God's expectations for us today. But I hear loud reverberations from the New Testament in each part of that verse. God's desire for his creation, for his followers, hasn't changed because he hasn't changed. So we're going to look at some New Testament scriptures which correlate to what the Lord asks or requires of us. First, fear the Lord. Have reverence for the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, God's word says, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Why bother to purify ourselves? If we don't have reverence for God, we probably won't bother. But out of reverence for God, we purify ourselves. The second thing that the 
verse 12, that the verse asks of us and requires of us, that the Lord asks and requires, is to walk in all of his ways. 1 John 1, 6 and 7. 1 John 1, 6 and 7 says, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from every sin. We purify ourselves in Christ's blood, not on our own works. And then we walk <clears throat> in all of his ways. The third instruction for relating to God <clears throat> was to love him. <clears throat> I have to say that each one of these four requirements or what the Lord asks of us, has so many corresponding verses that at first I had narrowed it down to my top five for each. And then <clears throat> it was way too long. And uh, so I cut it down. Okay, top three, top three. And it was still pretty long. So I decided we'll go with one or two. We, I decided we'd go with one and then couldn't do it. So in Love Him, we have two. <clears throat> 1 John 3, 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. There's a progression in that verse that I love. It goes from being a recipient of his love to becoming enabled to demonstrate that same love. So we're to love him. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or, nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. A circumcised heart, loving the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The fourth requirement for relating to God is to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. <clears throat> Romans 12, 11 says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. There's the object, serving the Lord. And Galatians 5, 13 says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. There's a horizontal and a vertical of this serving the Lord. Both are to the Lord. Under the Old Testament covenant and the New Testament covenant, God provides clear expectations for a relationship with him. Each of these categories of, of expectation has one and only one object, the Lord. Fear the Lord. Walk in all of the Lord's ways. Love the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. The central person in our life is the Lord our God. So how are we caring for or tending to our relationship with the Lord? Back to chapter 27. Chapter 27 provides a foundational model for relating to the Lord. At the beginning of our scripture passage today, we find the Israelites standing redeemed from wandering and poised for renewal. As part of the covenant renewal process, they are instructed to display the words of the Lord, to build an altar, to offer burnt offerings, and burnt offerings signify complete dedication or consecration to the Lord. 
and to sacrifice fellowship or peace offerings, to eat together and to rejoice. All of this was to be done in the presence of the Lord your God. In other words, they are instructed to worship the Lord as they renew God's covenant. This is the format God provides for tending to our relationship with him, worshiping him. God's instructions in chapter 27 plainly put first things first. It's as if he's saying, draw near to worship, take a break from the conquest of other nations, and focus on me, on my words to you, on declaring your dedication to me, on expressing our relation, your relationship with me, and on focusing on our joy in being together. The worship service on Mount Ebal brought the, brought the Israelites up the mountain into the presence of the Lord. Psalm 121, 1 and 2. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Worship is a true picture of fixing the gaze of our heart on the Lord. Intentional worship involves being careful to follow after our Lord. And when we're engaged in worship, whether it's corporate or individual, structured or spontaneous, the gaze of our heart is to be fixed on the Lord. So following the Lord in worship requires us to lift our gaze up to him. No longer should, if these are circumstances, and for the ladies listening, I'm wiggling my hands, the fingers in front of my waist. So if these wiggling fingers are our circumstances, no longer should our hearts be looking down on our circumstances or even straight ahead, so that we have a pretty good view of God and we can still check in on our circumstances and manage them to the best of our ability. It works really well. No, that's not how it should be. The gaze of our hearts needs to be lifted up to the source of our help. And when it is, I can still sense those circumstances. They haven't gone away. They're still there. But the focus of my heart, the gaze of my heart, is not consumed by them. It's confronted by the Lord. Those circumstances no longer control the gaze of my heart. It's our choice, ladies, where the gaze of our heart is. So picture the service of commitment on Mount Ebal. The prescribed worship provides us with a template of elements of worship which will always delight the Lord your God, giving prominence to the word of the Lord. And I have to say, the ladies who are listening on tape don't know this, but I haven't been using my Bible to read the scriptures, mostly because I need a new prescription. And so we're still asked to give prominence to the word of the Lord. And we're still asked to present offerings and sacrifices. And we're still asked to rejoice in the presence of the Lord. Those things are still true. The new covenant brought freedom from the repetition of animal sacrifices. But in place of those literal sacrifices, believers are still called to offer sacrifices. We're now called to Hebrews 12.1. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
First Peter 2.5 also says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The underlying idea of the spiritual service of worship requires a change of mindset. It's not offering literal sacrifices anymore. No, we change from going to an altar to worship. It changes from that to worshiping wherever we go. Not going to worship, but worshiping wherever we go. Our daily life is meant to be lived out as a spiritual sacrifice of worship, a constant response to who God is and what he says and does. To sacrifice means it's the surrender of something for the sake of something else. A sacrifice requires putting someone or something else ahead of yourself, ahead of yourself, not being consumed by your circumstances, putting the gaze of your heart on someone beyond you, ahead of yourself, putting God's word, putting God's truth ahead of what you might feel. The I knows come back. <clears throat> Hebrews 13, 15 through 16 mentions two specific areas of spiritual sacrifice. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So one spiritual sacrifice that pleases God is found in verse 15. Continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. This component, praise, was evident in the Israelites' worship. They were to rejoice in the presence of the Lord on Mount Ebal. We're also commanded to offer sacrifices of praise. Ephesians 5.19 gives some specific instructions on our praise. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to the Lord, to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. From this verse in Ephesians, it's clear that worship is relational. We're in a relationship with God. It's relational, and it doesn't only serve that vertical purpose but also a horizontal purpose. Speak to one another. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Our sacrifices of praise please God by bearing witness to one another in the church and to the world about who is without faith in Christ. They bear witness to the world and to one another. Believers can edify or build one another up by our corporate worship. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That verse is a command, one that we can't implement and integrate into our lives of worship if we haven't the foggiest idea what those three nouns mean. <clears throat> Psalms. These are inspired writings of God. They're found in the book of Psalms. I think that we could, any scripture could be set to music, but Psalms are pointed out here as inspired writings of God. They're usually set to music and sung to the Lord. I don't know how many of you have ever looked. At, there are directions to the choir director. There, you know, it notes different kinds of things at each psalm or most of them. And it struck me that King David wrote some of the most beautiful psalms of worship. That same King David who followed carefully until he didn't. 
And then he repented and followed anew. Those are psalms. So psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Hymns. Hymns. Get a bad rap. Hymns are dusty and old. I ask you to look at them with new eyes. They are songs that extol the character and works of God. Take a look at them. If the words seem fuddy-duddy to you, look deeper. Maybe you don't know what the word they're using means. Look it up. Hymns extol the character and works of God. And spiritual songs, some of our favorites now in our millennial view, uh, are songs about the Christian life, songs of witness to other believers and to the lost, songs that declare what Christ has done for us and what he can do for others. Those three distinct descriptions illustrate the horizontal and vertical dimensions of our worship. They combine to encourage all of those worshiping, those, that horizontal aspect, and at the same time, vertically honoring and pleasing God with the gaze of our heart. So the next time you're worshiping, either corporately or personally, try varying the song of your heart by mixing up the content of the sacrifice of your lips. Sing scripture set to music, psalms or other scripture. Sing theologically rich hymns. You can sing them with a new meter, it's okay with me. You can change the, um, the melody, okay too. Listen to the words. Sing those hymns, they're theologically rich. And sing songs, spiritual songs, declaring the work God is doing and has done in your life. Balancing those three types of songs makes our sacrifice of praise both accurate in its representation of God and authentic in its testimony to the works of his hands. Hebrews 13, 16 also presents a second type of sacrifice, and we've already touched on it. The end of verse 16 says, And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Doing good and sharing with others. Those are just purely descriptions of service. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. All that you do, whatever you do, is service to the Lord. Service is a spiritual sacrifice. It puts something else in front of you. Your time and energy can be first fruits, placed in your basket, and presented as an offering to the Lord. So, just like the Israelites, we must make worship a first things first priority. Our sacrifices of worship no longer require us to build an altar. We are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. During this building process, our Lord comforts us with his truth and our Lord confronts us with his truth. His desire is for us to respond with reverence, love, and service as we carefully and humbly 
walk in all of his ways. <clears throat> May our lives of moment-by-moment moment spiritual sacrifice cause those around us to hear these words. I want you to know the God I know. You've got to know the God I know. So be it. Amen.